Welcome to Fast Fiction. Come in, Sergeant. I've been expecting you. They could barely see her silhouette against the door, but the woman's voice was unmistakably English, with a broad northern accent. They did not hear her add under her breath, For forty years. Although keen to get in from the hot sun, the man stood by the open door as he replied, Actually, Mrs Holmes, we're not from the police. We're from Focus Assurance. I'm Jack Mays, and this is my associate, Sandra Keynes. The pretty girl beside him waved her hand in acknowledgement, her soft blonde hair damp around her face, gleaming with beads of perspiration, as she smiled a cheery, Good day. No matter. I've been expecting you. Come in. Needing no second invitation to get out of the glare and heat, the weary visitors made their way up the rickety steps to the veranda. Following the woman as she turned and made her way into the dark, cool cavern of the old house. Their footsteps echoed on the polished wooden floor as she ushered them into the parlour. The air was stale and musty. A bowl of faded plastic flowers scented a long chiffonier dotted with photographs. Crocheted antimacassars adorned the backs of the worn armchairs. Jack stared at the woman, echoing her greeting. Mrs Holmes, how did you know we were coming? We only got news ourselves yesterday morning in Brisbane, and we found it hard to track you down. Almost accusingly, he added, It's taken us over seven hours to get here. Then, as an afterthought, Do you know why we're here? The woman walked over to the window and pulled back the heavy curtain. A penetrating shaft of sunlight landed on Jack's face. He stepped back into the gloom. You're looking for Jennifer Sayers? It was more a statement than a question. Who told you we were looking for Jennifer Sayers, Mrs Holmes? Hardly anyone knows of her down in the town. Did she live with you? Jack was out of his depth in this rural area, with its tin roofs, rusty water tanks and miles of nothing. He wiped his brow and took out a notepad and pen. Mrs Holmes, do you have a phone? We couldn't trace a landline for you or her. Or is it a silent number? Or maybe you have a mobile? His hand hovered over the paper, ready to write. The woman moved from the window and sat down primly on the sofa. No, Sergeant, I don't have a telephone. We used to have one when the farm was up and running. We had two fellas working it then. But once Carl died five years ago, we had to cut down on expenses. Anyway, I don't have anybody to call. But the isolation. Sandra moved to the remaining chair. What if you were sick or needed help? This property is at least 60 kilometres from the town and the last 10 a rough track. The woman ignored her completely, focusing her immobile features on Jack. So how did you find us, Sergeant? Jack spoke to her as if to a child. As I said, I'm not a sergeant, Mrs Holmes. I'm simply Jack Mays. And forgive me, but it isn't you we've come to see. It's your tenant or companion, Miss Sayers. And it's a private matter. 
If she's working out on the property, we can go to her, Sandra suggested, trying to avoid thinking of the heat outside. Mrs. Holmes finally looked at her directly, weighing up her words, then said, She's outside, in the cemetery. Jack's voice showed his confusion. There's a cemetery here? We mostly used it for the domestic pets and the stillborn. What? Is she working out there, in this heat? Jack mopped his brow again. No, I said in the cemetery, Sergeant. Do you mean she's buried there? As his thoughts took more form, Jack asked tentatively, In an unregistered grave? The woman nodded vaguely, as if this was unimportant, and Jack paused, unsure what to do or say next. Sandra broke in eagerly. Jack, that explains why I couldn't find a Jennifer Sayers listed in the death register. Turning to the woman, she asked, Did Jennifer Sayers marry at all? You're both from the city, aren't you? The woman dismissed the question with a shake of her head. You don't understand. City people never understand. Her voice was flat and hostile now, and though Sandra wanted nothing more than to get back into their car and be on their way, she felt it best to pursue the investigation as thoroughly as possible. Mrs Holmes, it has been a long drive. I wonder if we could have a cool drink. Then maybe you could help us with our inquiries. As if suddenly aware of her neglect as hostess, the woman gave a winsome smile. Forgive me. I've been very rude. Of course, you're both hot and uncomfortable. Why don't you both freshen up and I'll make some lemon tea? She nodded. The bathroom is at the end of the hall. Then, as an afterthought, added, Of course, the dunny is outside. She went into the kitchen and almost immediately her visitors could hear the clatter of china. Jack leaned down beside Sandra, speaking in a whisper. What the hell do you think's going on? Is she batty or what? I reckon you'd be batty if you lived out here. No neighbours and no phone, she whispered back. And who is the we she keeps on about? Do you reckon it's the corpse outside? Jack intended light banter to combat his discomfort, but somehow it just sounded creepy. Well, let's take advantage of that wash. He went back to his chair. Ladies first. I'll take you up on that, his companion said as she headed for the door and into the hall. Feeling her way down the gloomy corridor, Sandra carefully made her way to the back door, praying that the dunny outside would be clean and free from spiders. Thankfully, it was both. But she was still grateful for the inside bathroom, while still noting its predictable austerity. A small sink in the corner showed copper-green pipes and a crude homemade shower, which had been set above the free-form bath. The threadbare towels were crochet-edged. She would have loved the luxury of letting the cool water run over her wrists, but remembered the rusty water tank outside. So a few minutes later, she was back in the parlour with a curt, Go easy on the water supply, as Jack made his own way for much-needed ablutions. They were both feeling refreshed when Mrs. Holmes came back in, carrying a heavy tray laden with a surprisingly gleaming silver service and a bone china tea set. Jack's ignorance of farm life became apparent with small talk, but Sandra was able to show understanding and sympathy for the domestic difficulties, as Mrs. Holmes confided. You're right. It's not easy. 
The truck's not very reliable, so I only get to the town once every two weeks for basic supplies. What I don't grow or provide, I do without. You're lucky. I've still got the milking cow, although she's beginning to dry up in this hot weather. The cow and everything else, Sandra thought to herself, but went on to ask. So how long have you been here, Mrs Holmes? We came to Australia in 1952 from Liverpool, the woman began. We were part of the youth revitalisation scheme after the war. That was not what she had meant, but Sandra realised that any hope for a quick response was shattered. It was going to be a long visit. We? Jack was still trying to be direct. The old lady paused briefly. Jennifer and me. Her voice took on a bitter edge. Keen as mustard, silly sods we were. It's all come out now, of course. The deceit, the lies, the way we were given to believe we had opportunity to make good. Her gaze went to the window again, and she looked far out into the distance. I was just thirteen. Jennifer the same age, all but for one week. My mother had been a single parent caught out by a soldier at the beginning of the war. He'd promised to marry her, but was killed as soon as he got to the fighting front so there was never any money around. She found it tough and, well, was always in trouble with the law. So I was made a ward of the state. There was another long pause as she drained her cup before immediately refilling it, then went on. Jennifer's mother was no better off. She had some family, but they'd all shifted out of Liverpool, either during or just after the war. So she was completely on her own too. Caught up in the story, Sandra broke in. Yes, I've read about it in the papers. Children were brought out here as cheap labour. Jack agreed. Yes, that's right. I saw a programme on television a while back. There's even talk of compensation. Encouraged by their input, the woman went on. When we arrived in Cabramatta, we were both sent to school. It was horrible. Worse than in Liverpool, because the nuns were always at us. Lashing out with rulers, whatever they felt like it. Making fun of our accents. <laughs> Told us to talk properly. The storyteller gave a derisive laugh. That was a joke. What with them sounding like... She suddenly realised who she was talking to. We were there for two years. As soon as I turned 15, I was sent as a housekeeper on a property just outside of Wallamimba. That's 40 kilometres east of Roma. A week later, Jem was sent to a similar place in Injun. That's 70 k's north. Sandra and Jack both nodded, although they only had a rough idea of the places she was referring to. We kept in touch. Our experiences were much the same, working like dogs by day, then fighting to keep the men's hands off us at night. Jen had it worse than me. She was assaulted by the owner's son, the bastard. Then when she accused him of rape, she was whipped for lying, the rotten pigs. She, she ran away, came to me at Clayfield. The old woman's voice took on a tremor and her hand went up to the nape of her neck as she went on. Her back was raw, like mincemeat it was. Then, without emotion, she continued with, I had to stitch her up myself. It was, it was incredibly painful. No anaesthetic, you see. A small gasp from Sandra stopped her momentarily. Well, there were few doctors around, and property owners rarely paid for their services just for employees. We weren't considered that valuable. Anyway, we were lucky because I, Jen made a quick recovery, and we persuaded 
We persuaded my employer to let her stay by pretending she was my twin sister. We looked so alike they believed us. She got up and walked to the chiffonier, picking up a photo of two young women and showed it to Sandra, who studied it intently. Was this taken on your wedding day? A slight motion of the head was the only response. And Jennifer was your bridesmaid? The two faces smiling up at her bore an uncanny resemblance. Both wore their fine blonde hair in the same style, parted on the side and secured with a bobby pin. Though the bride's veil enhanced the style slightly, her eyes were shining, full of excitement and hope. The bridesmaid's was only a little less so. Feeling a need to say something, Sandra said, You are both so pretty, as she passed the photo on to Jack. Jack gave it little more than a perfunctory glance before turning it over. So this was taken in 1958, when you were both, what, uh, 18? Mrs Holmes took the photo from him, returning it carefully to its place. It should have been the happiest times of our lives. We didn't know the drudgery ahead of us. So when did Miss Sayers move in with you? Jack asked, still eager to keep to the point. The woman sat back in the chair, her hands clenched in front of her. In her customary manner of ignoring the question, she went on. You see, back in 55, soon after Jen came to Clayfield, well, to join me, there was an electric storm and the whole place got raised to the ground in a fire. The owner and his wife died. Jen and I managed to get out and, after a short time recuperating in the Roma Hospital, we were reassigned to this place. We were still under 16 then, you see, wards of state. Jack began to shuffle in his chair, but stopped under the glare of Sandra's disapproval as Mrs Holmes was continuing her story. Almost unaware of their presence, she went on. They were reluctant to take us both on at first, as they only needed one girl. But we persuaded them we were twins and therefore worked better together. She shrugged her tiny, thin, bony shoulders. To begin with, work was much the same, grind as before, but... She faltered. She, I, I mean, I, I caught the eye of Carlyle, the boss's son. She went on almost savagely. Women were in short supply, especially young and pretty ones. So his dad wasn't too reluctant to consent to our marriage. Her voice softened. Naturally, once married, I made sure that Jen's working conditions were better, though it was still tough for both of us. It was not hard for Sandra to imagine life for two young women out there 50 years ago. Cows to milk, vegetables to grow, bread to bake before the dawn, the gruelling sun in summer and the bitter cold in winter. She came out of her reverie to hear Mrs Holmes' voice outlining much of what she had envisaged. Like I said, it was tough, especially when the first child was born. Jack and Sandra started. Somehow neither had thought of there being any children. It was always a natural assumption that children would stay on and work the family properties. Sandra looked for baby photos, but could see none. Mrs Holmes's nasal voice went on. Jamie lived till he was three. Mickey was gone within the year. There was a silence. 
Asandra wondered desperately what to say. Jack felt no such empathy and simply glanced at his watch. It was growing late and he was mindful of the long trip back to the city. Mrs Holmes, what happened to Jennifer Sayers? They were not there to indulge in memories. His question had the desired effect and took the woman from her vagaries. But what she said was most unexpected. It wasn't my fault. It was an accident. Anyway, she was bent on suicide. I'm sorry? Jack sat upright. Pardon me? Sandra did the same. Once more, Mrs Holmes seemed to be talking to herself. She went so so odd, you see. Jealous, possessive. <laughs> True, Carl was good-looking and wealthy, but when the first child was on the way, she got worse, almost insane. We do everything together, she kept saying. Together. She wanted to share the birth experience. Crazy woman. Their hostess got out of her chair and began to pace the room. There was a stillborn, first. Too much hard work, not enough time to rest. And then a year later, little James was born. He was healthy, <laughs> a strapping lad, and then... The voice strayed onto a flat monosyllable, which she repeated several times before continuing. One day, in winter, he wandered down to the creek. Everyone hunted for him for two days. There was another familiar pause. Sandra asked gently, Had he fallen and drowned? With no reply forthcoming, she tried again. Did he catch pneumonia? The response was quiet but firm. It was the razorbacks, the feral pigs. They're a pest even now. Jack's voice sounded incredulous. You mean he got attacked by a pig? Attacked? Yep. And eaten. Eaten? Eaten? Jack and Sandra repeated the word in a whisper of incredulity. The woman corrected herself. Well, partly. We found enough of him to identify. The room echoed with the stillness until she continued. We buried him up there. She nodded towards the outside. And a few months later, when Mickey was born with breathing problems, he finished up there too. The woman allowed herself a small sigh. You poor thing. Sandra went to the woman instinctively, touching her lightly on the shoulder in sympathy. But feeling the rigidity between her fingers, she quickly returned to her chair. So when did Miss Sayers pass on? Jack checked his watch again. I'm coming to that. Jack would get his information, but Mrs Holmes needed to tell her story in her own way. When we arrived, back in 58, they were still enjoying the wool boom. But after the big drought in 65, the whole area slumped and had to turn to sorghum and wheat. Things didn't pick up until 88. By then, Carl had put the men off, leaving only the three of us. So he put all our money into machinery, a big combine harvester. You don't need many men once you have those. So long as you've got one man who knows how to work it, Sandra added. Mrs Holmes nodded in agreement. Yeah, that's right. But machines get old and rusty, like people. It killed Carl. Sandra and Jack exchanged looks of speculation, noted by Mrs Holmes. She laughed derisively. Ha! No, 
I don't mean literally. We'd had heavy rains for weeks. Deep mud everywhere. Carl tried to bring the harvester in from the paddock and the machine rolled over. He was trapped beneath it, crushed to death. The visitors felt it appropriate to stay quiet, but finally Jack could stand the suspense no longer. And Miss Sayers? The woman took a deep breath. She went crazy the night of Carl's funeral and threw herself into the creek. Waters were still high after the rains. Grief, I expect. She was silent for a long time, staring into a past her visitors could not share. Jack and Sandra had been taken by surprise. What were they to think? That Jennifer Sayers had held a torch for her friend's husband all those years? The sensitive nature of this implication left them both in doubt as to what to say. Mindful that he would need to inform the police of all these revelations, Jack returned to practicalities. So where did you say she was buried? Up on the top of the hill in the burial plot. So you have a private burial ground here? Consecrated ground? Now that he fully understood what had been meant by the earlier remark, Jack's voice had a keen edge to it. Susan Holmes snorted. Consecrated? Ha! A minister came through a few years after we got here and said a few words. I don't hold with that sort of thing myself. Never did. But isn't it illegal to have home burial sites? Jack asked, thoughts of leaving momentarily gone. Sandra threw him a look of caution. I think you'll find that it was practised years ago, purely out of convenience. So, let me get this straight. Where is your husband buried? Jack ploughed on. Carl? Carl is buried in the town, of course, in the cemetery by the church. Yet Miss Sayers is buried outside. You can go on see if you like. It will only take a few minutes. Jack looked through the curtain at the sun, still a hazy glow. His eyes were raised in question at Sandra. She nodded, knowing that once back in the office, their report would look weak if they did not follow their investigations through. Going past the hat stand by the front door, Mrs Holmes took out a large black umbrella to act as a sunshade, but outside she showed little inclination to share it. The heat hit them like a powerful force as they trudged over dry scrub. Within minutes they were covered in spear grass as the vicious weeds unleashed their seeds. Sandra looked ruefully at her neat shoes with the modest high heels, wishing they were sneakers. Look out for the taipans, were the only words spoken by Mrs Holmes. There's a lot of them about this time of year. It took about ten minutes before they breasted the hill. Over the brow was a small copse of sandalwood with what had obviously been the family cemetery in its midst. Both Jack and Sandra were staggered at the number of graves marked by a variety of large white stones and crosses. As they walked past, they were relieved to see they were mostly for dogs and cats, but there were some overgrown sites that looked larger. So who actually buried her? Jack was puffing with exertion. I did. There was no one else to do it. We just spent a lot of money getting Carl put under. We were broke. Jack stood reflectively before asking, Is she in any sort of casket? The woman's eyes narrowed. Well, she's not in a coffin, 
like you'd buy from the undertaker. But I pulled down one of the old chests from the attic. I did the best I could, she added lamely. It was no different than in the Depression. Most country folk couldn't afford the time or money for getting their dead folk to the city. What with the heat, the flies, or the wet, and the mosquitoes. She left the picture for her visitors to figure out themselves. It was just easier to fix them up yourself at the time, and getting the minister to do his stuff whenever he was in the neighbourhood. The three stood around the most recent mound. A small piece of scarborough hewn wood served as a modest headstone. The words, Jennifer Robbins, D, 14 June 2005, were clear. I did that myself, Mrs Holmes said proudly. Chipped it out with a penknife, then set to with a blowtorch. Sandra's voice rose in excitement. Of course, you were Susan Robbins, and so, as your twin sister, she became known as Jennifer Robbins. That's why I couldn't find her in the registers, she added triumphantly. Jack was more interested in the Galladies as he posed the questions. And she's laying there dead all this time without benefit of having a death certificate made out for her? That's right. And you didn't tell anyone? No one to tell. She'd never been sick, hadn't seen the doctor, and the few friends we had early on long since died or moved away. The two city dwellers stared at the crude wooden cross, both feeling extremely ill at ease. Then Jack spoke wearily. Thank you, Mrs Holmes. I guess that explains why we lost trace of her. We can be on our way now. They made their way back to the house and stood in the shade of the porch. There seemed little to say. The country woman extended her hand and shook theirs in formal farewell. Goodbye, Sergeant. Goodbye, Miss. She did not even try to remember Sandra's name. Like I keep saying, Mrs Holmes, we're not from the police. Jack was embarrassed. Of course, we shall certainly be in touch with them now and pass on everything you've told so that the paperwork on Miss Sayers can be brought up to date. Meaningfully, he added, No doubt they'll be in touch with you later. For the first time since their arrival, Mrs Holmes looked curious. So who are you then? Where did you say you were from? We're from Focus Assurance. The last member of Miss Sayers' family recently died in Liverpool, leaving quite a fortune. If she had survived, she would have been an heiress to a great deal of money. Almost vindictively, he added, And then, of course, if she had left a will, she would no doubt have left it to you. As it is... Jack left the words unspoken and opened the car door for Sandra before going around to the driver's side and getting in. The heat fell out of the car in a wave of sickly-smelling polished leather. He switched on the air conditioning, eager to be gone. Backing the car with a flourish, he almost ran over a couple of squawking chickens before spurting forward towards the gate, leaving Sandra to wave back courteously as best she could to the lone figure, standing immobile like a statue frozen in time. For a few minutes, the old woman stood impervious to the scorching heat from the late afternoon sun, watching the haze of red dust become now more than a speck. Finally, she moved into the gloom of the house, her body trembling. 
She went directly to the chiffonier, picked up the bridal photo and stared at it. The smiling face of youth seemed to mock her. Unconsciously, her free hand crept up to her neck, then on beneath her loose flowing blouse to her back. Her fingers lightly caressed the deep scars embedded there. You bitch. You rotten bitch, Susan Holmes, she said quietly at first, her voice anchored to her suppressed rage. You tricked me again, even from your grave. Her body began to shake, and in mounting fury she threw the photo to the ground, stamping on it and crushing it into the threadbare carpet. Her heels dug deep into the images beneath her in a furious dance of despair. With a small cry, she fell to her knees. I loved you, Susan. For 50 years I loved you. You know I did everything for you. I stood by you and watched you take on a man, then helped you with the kids, everything. And I, I had nothing. Nothing but your rotten charity. She was shouting now, her arms flailing her body wild and unrestrained. I did everything for you. Got rid of Clayfield. Got rid of Carl. All the restrictions. All the restrictions to our love. The words came out haltingly now, unsure, as if asking for confirmation. And when... When we were finally free, when we could really be together at last, you tried to throw me aside, didn't you? As if I was just a piece of rusty machinery. I was worn out and out of date. Suddenly her mood changed, and with fury spent, she became repentant. I'm sorry, darling. I'm so sorry. But, see, I couldn't let you sell up and go away and and leave me. You were my life. This place is my life. I had nowhere to go. For a moment, she crouched silently, her body still but her mind racing in a hundred directions. Then, from deep within, an eerie, shrill laugh began to consume her. (laughs) And you know what the joke is, Susan? The bloody silly joke. I became you because I had nothing. And now, now I've got more money than you ever had. Her voice peaked, then fell back into a whisper of disbelief. But I'm dead. I'm bloody dead. Isn't that the funniest thing you ever heard? I'm up there rotting away. Yet, I'm a bloody heiress. Then, with her emotion raw and spent, Jennifer Sayers collapsed onto the floor and began to weep as the sun finally sank below the horizon, shrouding the lone house in darkness.